All right, we'll grab a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 9. We've been in this sermon series going through the book of Acts for the last couple months, and we're going to wrap that up next Sunday with a, a special morning in Acts chapter 10 next Sunday, and then I will continue studying through Acts in the Fellowship Hall classroom starting in the winter quarter on December 1st. So we're getting close to wrapping up the sermon series part of the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9 this morning. To get started, I want you to think about this question. Maybe you can think in your own life, and I'm sure a variety of things will come to mind depending on who I'm talking to, but here's the question. What do you view as impossible? Is there anything that you think or anyone that you think is impossible to change or anything that you think it will never happen? It's impossible. As a kid growing up, uh, my elementary age, all the way up through about junior high, I was a big Chicago Cubs baseball fan. Any other Cubs fans out there? Okay, none. Awesome. I, I thought maybe some of you. I, we got WGN Channel 9, Chicago Station. The Cubs mainly played in the afternoon, so when I wasn't in school, during the summers, I would watch their games. I watched every pitch. My favorite baseball player was Sammy Sosa, but I could name all the players on the Cubs team. I could give you their stats, and I don't know why, because the Cubs were terrible growing up, but I still watched them faithfully every game. The big deal about the Cubs when I was a kid, early 90s, mid-90s, was that they had not won a World Series since 1908. So most Cubs fans thought that it was impossible for them to ever win the World Series again. In fact, they believed that the Cubs were cursed. And then I stopped watching baseball because I discovered in high school, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I discovered how incredibly boring it is to watch a whole game of baseball. Uh, some of you are with me. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I started watching football, and I just wasn't a Cubs fan anymore. I stopped paying attention to them. And then when I'm a graduate college, I get married, I have kids, and then later on in life, I discover that the Cubs made it to the World Series. This was in 2016. So in my living room, late October 2016, I watched this happen. The Cubs finally did the impossible. They finally won the World Series. As a child, I watched them through all these tough seasons. I watched them lose almost 20 games in a row, and I watched every game, and then finally they did it. Finally they did the impossible. They won the World Series. Okay, you could probably think of examples maybe in your own life. I'm a sports fan, so I think of sports. This past Thursday, I went to the Star in Frisco, Texas, and I watched Greenville, the high school where I went to, play in the first round of the playoffs, and that was the first time they'd made it to the playoffs in 16 years. So everybody was celebrating the fact that they made fourth place in district, which is kind of an embarrassing thing to celebrate, but they, they broke their own streak. They made it back to the playoffs, and most people thought that was impossible. So maybe beyond just thinking about sports, you can think about whatever it may be. If we were having a discussion right now, I'm sure you could think of a lot of different things that you would view as impossible, especially if you're thinking about people. We probably all know people that we think it's impossible for them to ever change, for them to ever be any different. The story that we're going to study this morning in Acts chapter 9 is the story of Saul, who we know him better as Paul, and it's the most, in my opinion, the most dramatic 
conversion story in the entire Bible. The story of Saul becoming Paul, the story of Saul becoming a follower of Jesus, is the impossible becoming possible. So before we start reading this, I want to share two quotes with you to get you in the mindset, to get you thinking of the impossible becoming possible. And the first quote I want to share with you is this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. To him who is able to do, and if you were reading from NRSV, it would say abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine. Who wrote that? Somebody throw it out there. Paul, where does this come from? Come on. Ephesians chapter 3. You should know that because if, unless you're a guest or you haven't been here in a while, our theme passage this year is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. We've challenged you to memorize it. I've done sermons on it. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought about that quote because Paul is the one that wrote these words to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. That's language of the impossible becoming possible, and that's exactly what happens in Paul's life. Now, the second quote is this. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. Who said that? Anybody know? Rocky Balboa. People yelled out Rocky faster than you yelled out Paul, so maybe there's something wrong with that, that we know the Rocky quotes better than we know Paul quotes. Rocky Balboa, Rocky IV, he fights the big Russian guy, Ivan Drago, and after the match is over, this is, he gives this speech, if I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. You know, given the idea that the impossible happens. We didn't think we could change, but we can change. And that's what this sermon is about. That's what this story of Saul is about, is that if he can change, then surely we can change as well. So let's look at this story, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. And we'll just kind of read through, and like we did last week and uh, weeks previous, we'll, we'll read some of it, we'll paraphrase some of it, so I encourage you to follow along. Starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. My teacher at ACU, Tony Ash, called this the bad breath persecution because he's breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, capital W, this is the first time in Acts the church has been referred to as the way. If he found anybody belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul's purpose in traveling 140 miles to Damascus is to continue the persecution that he's already started against followers of Jesus. We first read about Saul in uh, Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is killed. And Saul is there giving approval. It's like he, you know, Luke makes him sound like he's this mob boss. And then in Acts chapter 8, he starts a pretty intense persecution against the church, and um, everybody scatters except for the apostles. So they've gone all over the place, and I'm sure a lot of people have traveled a pretty far distance to Damascus to get away from Saul. And now he's hunting them down, and he's planning on going to Damascus to intercept some letters and try to find any followers of Jesus that he can so he can bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. All right? That's what he's doing. That's his purpose. And then along the way, verse 3, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed 
around him. And what he's going to experience is not just a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in the Old Testament, like God appearing to Moses at the burning bush. What Saul is going to experience is a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Jesus says, why do you persecute me? To persecute Christ's people, to persecute the church, is to persecute Jesus himself. Jesus identifies with his people, so he meets Saul on this road to Damascus, and he says, you've been persecuting me. Why are you doing that? And in an instant, just like that, Saul's whole life is flipped upside down. His life is capsized. He discovers that he's been wrong all along. Have you ever felt really passionate about something? Have you ever felt like you knew and you're taking a strong stance on something only to find out later that you've been wrong? Maybe. You probably wouldn't admit it if you have, but I'm sure maybe we've all been there. Saul's whole life at this point was wrong, and he discovers it just like that. Jesus appears to him. He sees this light. He's knocked to the ground, and Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, is talking to Saul, and just like that, he discovers that every persecution that he commissioned, the death of Stephen and whoever else it might have been, it was wrongheaded. Saul was in the wrong. So his whole life has just been flipped upside down, and he's still going to go into Damascus, and he was going into Damascus to be a conqueror. And now he is going into Damascus as one who has been conquered. If you continue reading, it says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but they saw no one. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without his sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So he is knocked to the ground, and he can't see, and his whole life has just changed just like that. I read this story a while back. Uh, It happened September 11, 2001. It's when the terrorists hijacked the planes and flew them into the, the Twin Towers in New York City, but also into the Pentagon. And what I was reading was that there was a police officer on duty that was nearby, and he saw this happen. And so the police officer takes off running down the road, and immediately enters into this burning building to try to rescue people. And witnesses said that he was picking people up and carrying them out of the Pentagon to save their lives. And he started to run back in again, and some of the firefighters and others who were nearby said, Stop! Because he said that he didn't have a protective mask on, he didn't have a protective coat, he didn't have a hat or anything like that. So they said, Don't go back in there. And he just yelled back, There's still people in here, we've got to go save them. So he ran back in again, and by this time, because of all the smoke, he couldn't even see anything. And so he starts yelling out, is anybody still in here? And there was a guy named Wayne Sinclair and his co-workers, five of his co-workers, who were still in there, and they had been knocked to the ground, and because of all the smoke and everything that was happening, they couldn't see, and they had lost their sense of direction. So they were stuck in this burning building that was about to collapse, and they heard the officer's voice, and they said, we're over here. And they couldn't see each other, so he said, I'm going to keep talking. And he said, you just follow my voice. 
And so on their hands and knees, they crawled towards his voice, and he was able to get them out of the building right before it collapsed. He saved their lives. When I read that story, I thought about Saul, because I thought, you know, Saul's been knocked to the ground. This is more like the Jesus we read about in Revelation. He knocks Saul to the ground, he blinds him, and it Saul needs people to help him get to Damascus. He doesn't know his sense of direction. He doesn't know where he's at. And all of a sudden, he is completely helpless and he can't see. And all that Saul can rely on at this point in the story is to just listen to that voice that he heard from Jesus and just follow that voice. So he goes on into Damascus, and then we meet this other character in verse 10. His name is Ananias. Ananias is a follower of Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he has a vision. And in this vision, God speaks to Ananias and he says, Go to the straight street to the house of Judas, where there's Saul of Tarsus is staying there. Go lay your hands on him. How does Ananias respond? In verse 13, he said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. So Ananias' response is, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to go to this guy named Saul? Because I've heard about what he's doing. Maybe some of the followers of Jesus escaped Jerusalem and made it to Damascus before Saul does. And so they're warning him. And Ananias is seeing God in this vision, and God's telling him to go to Saul. And what he's thinking is, I don't think that's a good thing to do. But God will respond to Saul in verse 15 and 16. He says, go, he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So it's ironic because the one who has caused a lot of suffering is now going to become a sufferer for the name of Jesus. So we read in verse 17, Ananias went and he entered the house. Ananias obeyed. Even though there was probably a lot of fear involved in this, he still went. He obeyed. He did what God asked him to do. And he went into the home and he goes up to Paul and he says, Brother Saul. Imagine how that would have felt if you were Ananias. The guy who's been killing Christians, the guy who's been rounding people up and sending them into prison, and now you're going to him and you're calling him brother. And imagine if you're Saul, your whole life has just been turned upside down, you're blind, you're not eating or drinking anything, you probably don't even know what to think, and then this guy comes to you and he calls you brother. I imagine that was a formative thing for Saul to hear. So he speaks to Saul in verse 17. He says, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he comes to Saul and he speaks to him. You may switch to the pulpit mic. I'm just going to do it. Okay. Boys, uh, again, I said last week it's not the Holy Spirit. It's just we're, we're working out some kinks. So we'll keep going here. The only thing about in the pulpit, Mike, is i got to stand still, so y'all bear with me as I try to stand here and not move around. Okay, we're still in verse 17. Saul, uh, Ananias has spoke to Saul. He has um, laid his hands on him, and Saul is going to regain his sight here. He calls him Brother Saul. We don't know anything else about Ananias. 
All we know is that he acted on faith. He did what God called him to do. He went to Saul. He laid his hands on him. And then we don't read anything else about Ananias in Saul's letters. But you should never underestimate the impact that you can make on one person's life. We talked about that last week with Philip as he traveled through Samaria and then on the road where he met the Ethiopian eunuch and then he goes to Caesarea and he's preaching the word wherever he went. Never underestimate the impact that you can have on somebody's life. Every contact leaves a trace. Sean got up here uh, after the sermon last week and he shared a story of that happening in his dad's life which impacted his life and the next generation. So Ananias is obedient. He goes and he does what God calls him to do. He changes Saul's life And then Saul goes on to change many people's lives. In verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. And then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So one of the questions I have as I read this story is why was Saul blinded? Why did he lose his sight? What was the purpose of that? Was there a deeper meaning? Was there some sort of spiritual purpose to Saul losing his sight? Because it's just for three days, and then the scales fall off of his eyes, and he can see again. I read this story several years ago, and I've thought about it ever since then, and I was reminded of it as I was studying this story about Saul. There was a school district in DFW, and they were having an event one night for parents of students who were visually impaired. And the teacher that was leading this event went to an eye doctor several weeks before and asked if the eye doctor could create glasses that when you look through the lens, what you would see is the way the children could see. So somehow, some way, the eye doctor develops these glasses, gives them back to the teacher, and in that parent-teacher night, when all the parents showed up, the teacher did this demonstration, and she had parents come up there and put these glasses on. And they said, when you put the glasses on, you look through these lens... What you are now seeing is you're seeing your surroundings, you're seeing your environment the way your children see. So they put the glasses on, and for the first time ever, they're looking at the cafeteria, they're looking at other people, they're looking at everything around them, and what they're seeing is they're seeing it through the lens of their own children. And the way the story goes was there were a lot of tears shed that night. It was a very emotional night for those parents because they knew that they would never view their children the same again. Because now they could see the way their children see. And I think God goes for the eyes here. I think he blinds Saul for a few days so that when it's time, when Ananias shows up and Saul can finally see again, that changes how Saul will see the world and see other people. He will never see the same again. He can see again. He gets up. He's baptized. He eats. He regains his strength. And then in a dramatic fashion in verse 20, he goes into the Damascus synagogue and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So Saul, who was on his way to Damascus to go to the synagogue to arrest people, has still gone into the synagogue, but now he's gone in for very different reasons. Instead of going there to round people up and arrest them, he has now entered the synagogue and he's saying, Jesus is the Son of God. Wow, what a turn of events. In verse 21, we get the people's reaction. 
All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who, who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked his name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. The responses that, Paul, that Saul gets in chapter 9 kind of highlights and emphasizes how his conversion was the impossible becoming possible. If you look at how Ananias responds, when he sees the vision, he's like, are you sure you want me to go talk to this guy? When he goes into Damascus in the synagogue, the people responded like, this is the same guy that was causing havoc. He's like an animal throwing people in prison. And now this guy's in our synagogue saying, nope, I was wrong all along. Jesus really is the son of God. And then Paul has to escape the city through a basket because now people are wanting to kill Saul. The hunter becomes the hunted. And then if you skip down to verse 26, he makes his way to Jerusalem. If you read Galatians chapter 1, it's probably about three years go by. By the time that Saul eventually makes his way to Jerusalem. Verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So now this third reaction we get from a group of people in Acts chapter 9 is they didn't even believe it. They thought he was working undercover. So the disciples in Jerusalem, I can imagine Peter and James and others saying there is no way this guy who was standing there giving his approval when Stephen was killed is really a believer. But thankfully Barnabas steps in. Barnabas is the son of encouragement and he defends Saul. And he tells the story of Saul's conversion about the impossible becoming possible. So just like Rocky said, if I can change and you can change, everybody can change. If Saul can change, then maybe I can change and maybe you can change. So as we view this story about the impossible becoming possible, to me it makes me think as we try to apply it to our own lives, change is possible. If that is the same God who met Saul on the road, which I believe it is, and he was able to change Saul in such a dramatic fashion, then it's possible that we can change also. It's possible that others can change. We've talked a lot this year about Christ and others, about who's your one, about reaching out to people in our community. And so when we talk about other people, you could sit there and maybe reflect in your own life of people that you know from work or school or your neighborhood. And we talked a little bit about this last week with Philip and his outreach. And there are pro there's probably people where you're thinking, I don't know if they'll ever change. I don't even know if it's possible. And all I can say is look at this story and look at Saul. And if it's possible for Saul to change, it's possible for anybody to change even if it takes a very long time. So it's possible for others to change, but even more personal than that, I think it's possible for you and I to change. I think that's possible. Now think about what Paul, what Saul Paul had to change as an individual. He went from being the persecutor of those who believed in Jesus to a preacher in Jesus' name. He went from being like a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to being a missionary to the Gentiles. 
Saul went from being very self-righteous to being completely humbled. And the list could go on. He changed dramatically as an individual. And his conversion story is dramatic. So now for most of you, you may be thinking, well, my conversion story wasn't that dramatic. If you're like me, maybe you grew up coming to church and you were kind of grafted into this. And as a teenager, I made a decision to be baptized and I've slowly been changing ever since then. So it wasn't just like I saw a bright light on a road and then my life was completely changed. And I'm sure a lot of you, that's what your story is like. But even if you've been on this journey for a long time, none of us are perfect So there's probably something we all need to change about ourselves. God's still working on us. There's a gap from who we are now to who God wants us to be. And so we need to mature. We need to grow in this journey of following Christ, of discipleship. What needs to change in you? Well, you don't need to look at somebody else. You don't need to look at your spouse or somebody sitting beside you. But if you were just doing some honest evaluation of your own life, you might think of things that you know deep down inside. Maybe it's secret sins. Maybe it's something that nobody else knows about. Maybe you struggle with lust or gluttony. Or maybe you don't always tell the truth. Or maybe you have this pride, but really it's insecurity I could go on and on, and I could just list a bunch of sins, and I'm sure as I did that, it would match up with you somewhere at some point. And maybe you've just accepted it, and you think, well, that's just who I am. I don't think I'll ever change. But change is possible. If Saul can change, then you and I can change. Peter Scazzaro wrote a book called The Emotionally Healthy Healthy Spirituality. And in this book, he tells a story about a guy that went to church with him who said, I've been a Christian for 21 years now. He had become a Christian 21 years before that, and he said, but I'm not a 21-year-old Christian. I haven't really matured very well. Been a Christian for 21 years, but I'm not a 21-year-old Christian. As we grow, as we try to close that gap, we should be maturing along the way. And my thought is, I want to mature each year. I don't want to be the same person today that I was last year. And I don't want to be the same person next year that I am today. And it may be small, subtle things. But we should be maturing as we go along the road of discipleship. And if Saul can change, I can change, you can change, and others can change. Because nothing is impossible with God. So again, the words that Paul says at the end of this prayer for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3 is to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If you need to be prayed for today. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, come up front and see me or one of our elders or or find one of our elders around the room. You can talk with them privately. I want to invite you to stand and sing.